Well, if you would, please take out your Bible. I'm, I'm disorganized over here, but that's just going to happen. We're starting a series on Ezra this morning, and the first thing that we're going to do is a sword drill. Anybody know what a sword drill is? Everyone knows what a sword drill is. Hold up your Bible. You don't shout out. This isn't that kind of sword drill. Turn to the last verse of the Old Testament. I'm going to go faster than you because I already know the answers, so don't get too upset if you don't um, follow along. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. That's not what I want to talk about. Turn instead to the last book of the Old Testament, chronologically what's the last book in the narratives what's the what's the last thing to happen chronologically in the old testament uh, must, be must it be maybe you're thinking maybe some of you are flipping to the end of nehemiah the end of the narrative of the old testament is nehemiah it's the last thing to happen that's recorded chronologically is the events that happen in Ezra and Nehemiah. It's about the return to Jerusalem from the exile. And yet that's not exactly what I'm going to talk about quite yet this morning either, because there's another way you could turn to the end of the Old Testament. Who knew? Turn to the last verses of the Old Testament of the scriptures as Jesus knew them during his earthly ministry. I see nobody turning. Does anybody know? Brother Montes probably does. The final verses of the Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament, which was in place at the time of Christ. By the way, I have no timer set, so I'm just going to do that real quick. Is second, nobody would have guessed this, second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles is the final book of the Hebrew Old Testament, which is strange because the end of 2 Chronicles says, now in the first year, I'm going to start at verse 22 and probably just, it's, not the, it's the second to last verse. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. The final verses of the Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament are Second Chronicles. Immediately after this verse is Ezra. Exactly what happens right after that is in Ezra. However, in the Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament, it goes Ezra, Nehemiah, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, the end. I find this perplexing. I think it's very, very interesting, obviously, because I'm quite excited about it. So there's a reason for this. The, the Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament is more interested in making a theological point in its ordering than it is in making a chronological point. The way that we find our Old Testament is organized somewhat chronologically and also somewhat by type of literature. This isn't exactly the way, and this isn't to say that one ordering over the other is inspired per se, but I think it's interesting and helpful for us to understand why it was organized as such. The Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament ends with Second Chronicles, but if you read it, you would immediately want to go back to Ezra. You would say, well, but I, I, I know what happens after this. What, why did you put this before First and Second Chronicles? So, the, so I'm going to explain just briefly what the, what the Hebrew ordering is. It's in three sections. Law, prophets, writings. Okay? Law being the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And then the Hebrew ordering goes to the prophets, they call it. Yet in the prophets, it's actually primarily, although not exclusively, the history of 
the Jews after the Pentateuch. So in the prophets, we find things like First and Second Kings, Joshua, Judges. Then you have a section called the writings. The third of the three sections is called the writings. Within the writings, you have three sections. The poetic books, the five scrolls, and the other books. We're in the other books, okay? The other books, which is the third part of the third part, is Daniel and Ezra. Except it's Ezra, Nehemiah, First and Second Chronicles. Because in some copies of scripture and in some traditions, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Chronicles are all called Ezra. First, second, third, fourth, Esdras. If you've ever seen that word show up anywhere, Ezra's been called the chronicler. It's, I would say, a potentially slightly debated but um, compelling to think that Ezra, Nehemiah, and First and Second Chronicles go together in some very interesting ways. Uh, the purpose of the third division, the writings, which is where we find ourselves in Ezra, is to instruct God's people in how to experience once again the ideals that were set forth in the first part, the law, but in which they got horribly wrong in the second part, the prophets. So when the law is set forth, theologically, the ideals for God's covenant people. We read some about that this morning, the blessings and the curses. And then in the prophets, we see, oh yeah, no, you keep not doing the things you're supposed to do. Prophets give warnings, prophet gives warnings. And then the way that they've ordered the Hebrew Old Testament is to put forth again the ideals. So it's first in the ordering of Ezra, Nehemiah, and first and second chronicles that Ezra, Nehemiah, go and rebuild the house of God. And then you read about Chronicles, which is an idealization of God's people. Even though, chronologically, it's exactly the inverse. Why? Why? Well, because the house of the Lord needs to be rebuilt before God's people can worship him in an idealized way. And giving the ending away here before we get started, and by the way, I mean ending of, I don't know when, all of Ezra and Nehemiah someday if I ever get to it. The ending is not good. They don't go back and flourish they go, Ezra and Nehemiah and the exiles go back and in some ways kind of repeat some of the things that you could find in the second section of the Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament, the writings. It's not a success. Yet at the end of Second Chronicles, there's great hope because Second Chronicles says, go up to the house, go back to your land, rebuild and worship. And so the Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament is one that looks forward to the day of that being done successfully, even though we know immediately what happened, which is it wasn't particularly successful. Chronicles, now I'm talking more minutely about first and second chronicles, has been called an idealization of Israel's history. If you've ever wondered, why is there first and second chronicles and first and second kings? And why is there so much repeat between those? Uh, first and second chronicles um, is like redacted. It's like, I don't want the part about Bathsheba. I don't want the part about Solomon's other wives and concubines. Even the part about Manasseh, one of the worst kings ever, is the one who basically gets exiled, uh, the threat realized, is, is tweaked. Not different just limited in its information in 2 Chronicles and 1 Chronicles. So 1 and 2 Chronicles are not changing. They're just making a particular point, which is to highlight God's covenant people in an idealized way. So it's fitting that to God's people, the Jews, under the law, they would see Chronicles as their highest point of history. It's when we had David and we had Solomon and we worshipped him and we stubbed our toes and yeah, we did some things we shouldn't have and we were sent into exile, but look right at the end of our whole scripture, we're promised to get out of exile and go back home and worship him in truth. This is the position they find themselves in yet today. And it's a fascinating theological comment that's being made that that's where the Hebrew Old Testament ends. Yet for us, we're going to start with Ezra and Nehemiah. Why? Because it's the sequel to Daniel. And several years ago, as Dana and I preached through Daniel, I just was fascinated with what happens next. In Daniel, we find out the experience of life in exile 
Ezra picks up the story. I want to know more about the story. And so for me, it's been something I've thought a lot about and been fascinated by. And I think we find some really, really key theological things in Ezra. In Ezra, as we're going to learn in the coming weeks and months, God's people return from exile to their home, but they're not really geopolitical anymore. They're under Persian rule. And they're not really fit to rule themselves. They primarily go back and become a religious people. They go back to build the temple and worship. That's it. Taxes still go back to Babylon, and they are still under Medo-Persian rule. So you see God calling his people out of his people and becoming primarily a religious group. So there's, there's a picture of the church, I think, in the way that even God deals with Ezra's people. So... We're in Ezra, which happens after First and Second Chronicles, but think of it as being before First and Second Chronicles theologically in the sense of we're looking forward to something else. So who is Ezra? Ezra has been called the scribe, the chronicler. The chronicler because they say Ezra potentially is the one who took all of the writings and the law and put First and Second Chronicles together. So Ezra would have been the one that said, no, I, I'm sitting here in exile. I don't think the point I'm trying to make is about Bathsheba and the, the king of David not being the perfect king. The point I'm trying to make is that, you know, we, we, we seek someday to be ruled by a perfect king. So let's, let's have Chronicles set up so that it's a little bit more of an idealized version. There's apocryphal books that have been attributed to Ezra. Um, Judaism traditionally credits Ezra with establishing the Great Assembly. That's in capital, so it means something official that I don't know what. But the Great Assembly is the forerunner to the Sanhedrin. So tradition has Ezra as the establisher of the Great Assembly, which becomes the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin in the time of Christ would be considered the authority on matters of religious law. So Ezra, the skillful scribe. Rabbinic traditions have Ezra metaphorically referred to as the flowers that appear on the earth. That's beautiful. Ezra comes and he's like a flower on the earth, signifying the springtime in the national history of Judaism, as I was describing with this idealized version. A disciple of Baruch ben Neriah, he favored the study of law over the reconstruction of the temple, this is debatable, and thus, because of his studies, he did not join the first party returning to Jerusalem in the reign of Cyrus. In Ezra, named after him, probably written by him, we're going to have to wait till chapter 7 before Ezra's even in the story. We're picking up 50, 60 years ahead of that, I think. So uh, Ezra, one tradition says, didn't go back initially because he was also a priest, and it was his younger brother who was in line to become the head priest. And because he was a man of renown as a scholar, he didn't want to go back and confuse the people and have them put him up as high priest inappropriately. So this is um, some of what Jewish and rabbinic traditions say about Ezra more than it is something that we can potentially prove. But I think it helps us kind of flavor in a little bit of his reputation. According to tradition, as I said, he was the writer of Chronicles. One tradition has him also as Malachi as Malachi. Not all of these authors are known. Malachi means my messenger. So it's thought that the book of Malachi is more of like a title. Here's the words of my messenger. So one tradition has him as the author of Malachi. Some traditions, one I find actually somewhat compelling and thought-provoking is that Ezra, and this, I would say by some traditions, I mean lots of great old dead guys hold to this. Modern textual criticism tends to look at things with more of a scalpel and discredit some of these ideas, but I would say this has been um, uh, commonly held, um, although maybe not fully exhausted. Some traditions hold that Ezra is the great editor of the Old Testament. So there are words in uh, the Pentateuch about Moses after he died. Some traditions hold that it's Ezra in the post-exilic community that gathered the scrolls, 
organized them in such a way, took all of the Psalms, put them into the five books of the Psalms, because the five books of the Psalms tell a story mirroring the five books of the Pentateuch, as we have discussed briefly here, and essentially, not singularly in some particular superhero type of way, but that Ezra is influential and somewhat responsible for the Old Testament canon, putting Chronicles at the end. So Ezra is uh, not a trifle of a figure in Jewish history or influence, even though we may not talk about him very often. I mentioned to you that he was also a priest. So if you think about like some Old Testament archetypes, you have Abraham, Father Abraham we sing, right? Moses as a great prophet, Aaron as a great priest, David as the king, not the only king, but that's one of the ways we would think of David. We have Ezra as the scribe, the great teacher. So I think that he is a big archetype in the Old Testament, especially when you follow the tradition on Ezra's influence over it. So we have a heavenly father, a heavenly prophet, priest, and king. We also have a great teacher in Christ. Christ is called teacher, the author and perfecter, the author of our faith, and the inspiration of scripture. And we could call that, we could call our Lord the great scribe. So in that way, you could think of Ezra as typological of Christ. You could think of Ezra as typological of Christ. Four parts to Ezra Nehemiah, which is essentially, I think, the way that will be organized. The first six chapters of Ezra, they talk about the return of a group of exiles and the rebuilding of the temple of God. Then in 7 through 10, the, re the return of Ezra and the rebuilding of the people. So first, the return of exiles, rebuild of the temple, then return of Ezra, rebuilding of the people by instituting the law and reform. And then in Nehemiah, the return of another group of exiles and the rebuilding of the wall, followed by the last part of Nehemiah, the return of another group of exiles and the rebuilding of the people of God. Return, rebuild the temple. Return, rebuild the people. Return, rebuild the wall. Return, rebuild the people. Return, rebuild. Cyclical. So we're approaching our text this morning, Ezra 1.1, under four headings. All that was under my own personal heading of background. We have not hit my introduction heading yet, but don't worry, we're moving along. It, these are your four headings, I believe, uh, printed in your outline as well. Introduction, inspiration, interpretation, and influence. Ezra 1.1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Point one, introduction. How did God's people get here? How are we here in the first year of Cyrus? The, the, the context here can start with, and this is where I'd ask you if you are able to turn with me, we're going to go to Deuteronomy 4. Our Old Testament readings have been mirroring this quite well. In Deuteronomy 4, while God's people are still in general obedience and being given the law, he gives them these warnings. Okay, I'm saying these warnings are given before disobedience. You don't hear me saying while they were perfect, but these are uh, four warnings before they have fallen under these curses. Okay. Deuteronomy 4.25, when your father's children and children's children have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. And you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands, that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. 
God is gracious in that he gives them a warning. Flip over to Deuteronomy 28. God is so gracious that he repeats his warnings. If anybody is thinking of an application there, I don't think it's very hard to imagine that the warnings of a parent often need to be repeated as our Heavenly Father repeats the warnings. Deuteronomy 28, 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And further in 28, it says, The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. And you shall not prosper in your ways. And you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually. And there shall be no one to help you. And then later in 33, starting maybe even in 32, your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people. Remember in Daniel 1, they take the best and the brightest, right? Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long. But you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and all of your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually. This is the warning that the Lord gives to God's people. So do they heed the warning? 2 Kings 21. We're, for the sake of time, skipping over significant chunks of Israel's history, but we're getting to kind of the point, okay? 2 Kings 21. Manasseh. 2 Kings 21, 2 through 7 say this about Manasseh. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel in Joshua. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. High places are temples to pagan gods. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. The host of heaven is created. Manasseh set up temples and worshipped the creature rather than the creator. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem will I put my name. That's my temple, the Lord says. Manasseh built altars in there. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering. This is the king of Israel and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. This is what the king of Israel did, despite those warnings despite those warnings. And in verses 10 through 15, we see the Lord's response. Because he did these things, therefore I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. This is what the Lord says. You can keep reading through that if you have the stomach for it. Even in 2 Kings 23, the much-celebrated Josiah in 2 Kings 22 offers reform. He brings the law back. He's abhorred by what he sees with what Manasseh did. Still, even so, 2 Kings 23, 26, still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. Even then, the Lord said, I will pour out my wrath upon you. 2 Kings 24 and 25 detail the fall of Israel by the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the taking of the Jews to Babylon. All of them? No. All the good ones, you could say, tongue-in-cheek. The, the choice, the young, the scribes, so forth and so on. A remnant was left behind, certainly. 
Psalm 137 shares with us the experience of exile. How can I sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? This happened to us. We are now in Babylon. And I think this is something that those of you who might remember when we preached through Daniel may, not, may remember I find fascinating and helpful. The Lord in 1 Kings chapter 8, during the um, Solomon's prayer of dedication for the new temple, Solomon gives instructions what to do if you ever go into exile. He gives instructions ahead of time. We have the warnings, do this and you're going into exile. And then we see when they did that, and then we go to exile. Solomon actually, in his prayer, shares it. Chapter, uh, verses 46 through 51. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, Solomon's praying to God on behalf of the people all out in front of him at the dedication of the temple. If you get angry with them, Lord, and send them somewhere, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have them been carried captive, if they turn their heart once they're there in Babylon and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their captives who carried them captive and pray to you toward the land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name. Then here in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion. If in exile you repent and pray toward Jerusalem, which is exactly what we see Daniel doing in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel in the lion's den. Why is he thrown into the lion's den? Because he refuses to stop praying. And he wants to pray in front of his open window, which we, as youth, maybe are celebrate rebel Daniel. Daniel's being obedient to 1 Kings 8. Pray towards the land. His heart is wide open to Jerusalem saying, Lord, bring us back home. So Daniel is obedient to this prayer and I imagine maybe he's even got some of the prophecies of Jeremiah and Isaiah opened in front of him that say that exile will be only for a certain length of time, and then I will use Cyrus by instrument and return you. So we find ourselves now knowing how they got into exile and why, and very, very briefly, a little bit of what happened to them while they were in exile, finally here at last at Ezra 1. It's at the end of exile. In Daniel chapter 5, so that I have it organized in my own mind here by like chapters 1 through 6 of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, 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 Nebuchadnezzar goes away and is conquered by the Medo-Persian named Darius. And then chapter 6, Darius, that's supposed to be a 6, chapter 6, Darius again. So, and, so here we are now in the first year of Cyrus, Okay. That's the very beginning of our verse in the first year of Cyrus. It didn't take us to, uh, anyways. In the first year of Cyrus, Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian, Medo-Persia, if you've heard that term, Darius gave to Cyrus the younger rule over the Jews in Babylon. He said, you take Babylon. So here we are in the first year that Cyrus has Babylon. Not the first year of Cyrus ever, but in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. That was point number one, introduction. Point number two, inspiration. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. That the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord how? By Jeremiah. The word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Right here in your Bible is a little comment about the inspiration of Scripture. It's whose words? The Lord's. And it's how? By the mouth of Jeremiah. One definition of inspiration says it's the agency by which God's revelation takes form as Scripture. What was the agency here? The mouth of Jeremiah. But whose words are they? They're God's words. They're God's word. This is helpful, although um, we're not going to spend a ton of time on it. We did briefly comment on it with regards to Ezra's kind of scribal role. God 
has established scripture, the inspiration of scripture is in part by revelation and part by canonization. The canon is part of the, uh, the process of the canon is part of biblical inspiration. And what's the pattern that you see in scripture over and over? Um, I read a book once on the New Testament canon and he explained, and I think it's a helpful thought, um, uh, which maybe doesn't hold up under microscopic scrutiny, but as a good general comment, is the experience of God's people is that God acts, and then God gives written words. That, that's, that would have been their normal process. Moses comes down from the mountain and says, and, and they see God acting, and then they're given words of the Lord. So there would be a normal pattern that there's act, and then there's scripture being delivered, which is why you could say that the apostles and the earliest of Christians expected the New Testament. If great and mighty acts of God in the person of Jesus Christ, give us your words, Lord, as you have always faithfully given us your words. And even at the end of Ezra 1.1, this verse here, he made a proclamation and put it in writing. Even, I think Ezra has a lot to say about the Bible. In our confession, which is, if you have it handy, great. If not, no problem. In the first chapter, it's called, and if, by the way, if you have a hymnal with you, it's in the back somewhere. Uh, of the Holy Scriptures, it says, It pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diversified manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto the church and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church, to be commit the same holy unto writing. Paragraph 4 says, The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but a holy upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore it is to be received because it is the... Word of God, Ezra 1.1, the word of God by the mouth of Jeremiah. And it, when it says in our confession that it was in diversified manners, in Hebrews 1.1, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, if you know that verse, that's what our confession is using, some of that language. What many ways? You don't have to flip through here with me, but I'll just share briefly. In Exodus 31, 18, when he had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. Sometimes scripture is the direct writing of God. Sometimes, in another way, he commands people to write. Revelation 1, 19, write therefore the things that you have seen. Deuteronomy 31, now therefore write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Sometimes scripture gets to us because the Holy Spirit, the Lord told them, write it down, write it down. 2 Peter 1.21 rounds out a third way that I'm highlighting. Sometimes it's by influence or inspiration, which is somewhat where we find ourselves here. In 2 Peter 1.21 it says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Okay. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As they were carried along. We're going to get there in a minute, but as a little teaser, it says the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16, perhaps the most uh, famous passage. All scriptures God-breathed and useful for teaching and so forth. Some of the English translations, breathed out by God give inspiration of God, inspired by God, is inspired by God. The Bible says it. The Bible doesn't say, as you might hear some uh, modern, very progressive, I'll say pastor, um, very recently on social media, you can ask me after who that is and what I'm alluding to. We don't hear, you know, a wise man named Jeremiah once said, there was a person in history who wore a robe and had a quill and a pen, and he wrote these things down in a travel journal, and I think these are a benefit to you. You ought to read these. I don't know what the Bible says. The Bible says, the word of the Lord, the word of God. Here's Matthew Poole on First and Second Samuel. This is his introduction to First and Second Samuel. If I could do a stuffy British accent, I would, but I can't. 
it is not certainly known who was the penman of this book or whether it was written by one or more hands, nor is it of any great importance. For since there are sufficient evidences that God was the chief author of it, it matters not who was the instrument. As when it appears that such a thing was really an act of parliament, it is not considerable who was the clerk or which was the pen that wrote it. It's an act of parliament. That's the final word on the matter. Well, who wrote it down? Who wrote that down? What is an act of parliament? Who is said to speak in scriptures? I am is speaking in scriptures. The son who not only sent his apostles to teach, but who ordered them to write. Revelation 1, write this down. Do you know what it says in John 14? As uh, Christ is offering his high priestly prayer, I've heard it described that they're walking from the Last Supper to the garden. Probably there's blood flowing from all of the sacrifices, and he's discoursing with them. That's at least the setting that I imagine there. I don't know if it's 100% certain, but that's around the passages that we're in. He says in 14, 25, and 26, the Holy Spirit will come back later and help you remember everything. The Spirit, the Helper, he'll come back and help you remember it. Man, what a great comfort. I've thought before, I've heard the textual criticisms, oh, well, John was written 100 years after those events happened, or 70 years. Can you remember anything 70 years ago? No, man, I'm 41. I can't remember anything 70 years ago for sure. So how could they have known? And when was it written? Okay, let's not get into all that, except Scripture answers it. The Holy Spirit's going to come back and help you remember. That's a great comfort. That is a great comfort to us. And Hebrews 1.1, it says, long ago and in many diverse ways, but it says in these last days, our days, the gospel days, the church age, he spoke to us by his son. He's spoken to us by his son. So we have the words of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. We have the words of the Lord by the Lord also. What a great comfort. So what does this mean for you in terms of scripture and inspiration? Trust the words in your Bible. They're perfect from a perfect God. And we have been spoken to by God. What do we say after the reading? This is the word of the Lord. We're making a statement. It's helping us remember. Our minds are feeble and weak and wander, and we pick up any other book but our scriptures, and we fail to appropriate it in the way that we ought to, and yet we say truth, and we pray that we worship also in spirit. Even now, as we have revelation from his son, believe the words of scripture and wait for the promises in scripture. One day we'll see clearly face-to-face our Lord. So we should anticipate that because we know it's true because the Bible says so. And that's an okay statement to make. I believe it because the Bible says so. And, and what is there anything we could do about that? Well, one thing that I would say to you, if you believe that the word of the Lord, as we're reading by the mouth of Jeremiah, oddly enough, by the pen of Ezra, if you want to keep playing with that, approach scriptures with reverence and cherish the words. Don't read it as any other book. Pray in anticipation of reading. Ask the Holy Spirit to help. The Holy Spirit help the apostles to remember. The Holy Spirit wants you to understand. Pray for help. Approach a holy and perfect God in an undistracted way and treat it as the words of God. Not to put the law upon you that you're not doing it well enough, but to impress upon you who you're engaging with when you read scripture. When I read scripture to you up here, when Brother Logan reads scripture to you, when you flip open the Bible to find a reference, this is the words of the Lord we're dealing with. What a wonderful father that has kindly shared his words with us, and yet let us have great respect for them. Point three, interpretation. By the word of the Lord, by the mouth of Jeremiah, sorry, sorry, point two was that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Point three, might be fulfilled. Might be fulfilled. Ezra's interpreting scripture right here. By the words of the Lord, by the mouth of Jeremiah, this is happening, so that gets fulfilled. As soon as we're there, we're in interpretation now. This, this is a scripture, interpreting scripture. Which prophecies? Two main ones, a countless number of other ones that I think I'll be able to bring to you at other times. Um, if you'd like, you can turn to Jeremiah 25, and then shortly we'll turn to Jeremiah 29. Um, if not, just hear these prophecies. This is what Ezra has in mind, that the mouth, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 25, starting around 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servants, and I will bring them against this land, its inhabitants, and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness. How can I sing the Lord's song? Huh? The voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. The grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now here we are in the first year of Cyrus. Then... After 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it. Do you remember in Daniel chapter 5 when Nebuchadnezzar's son was profaning the holy things of the temple in this great ballroom feast? A hand came up and started writing on the wall. I will bring the words of the Lord against them. Everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations, for many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds. It was written 150 years approximately before Ezra's writing. These are the words of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah that are being fulfilled. It says that I will give them over to many nations, Babylonian, Medo-Persian. If you remember the statue made of four types of metal, we also have the the Greek and the Romans all put uh, Jerusalem under rule. And in Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile." This is the interpretation that Ezra's bringing us, that these words of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. We even get a little bit more than you might think, well, yeah, they're promised to return to exile. Yeah, he says, also to punish Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and the Chaldeans. There's more happening in this. We have scripture interpreting scripture. Ezra is telling us why it happened, so that the words of the Lord, and also from Isaiah and others, might be fulfilled in our confession of faith. Same chapter one, paragraph nine. You know, chapter one is all about Holy Scripture, so it makes sense that there might be a comment about interpretation. Paragraph nine says, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not many but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. Ezra is utilizing scripture to interpret events and inscripturating his interpretation so that I can be here and interpret it for you and the New Testament can help us understand the truths that this looks forward to. Interpretation is happening every time we read our Bible. And right here we see a very clear example of the doctrine of inspiration. This happened so that these words might be fulfilled. Whenever Christ, if you remember... Have you not read? That's an interpretative question, interpretive question. As it is written, these are interpretive comments, okay? You go back, we're not biblicists. We interpret it. So Christ doesn't answer things by saying, just read this. He's saying, have you not read? This is what it meant as it was written. You're searching those scriptures. It's me they talk about. Interpretation is happening even here in Ezra 1.1. And our final point, influence. The word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, so that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Here's point four. The Lord stirred up 
the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Who has the hearts of all men in his hands? Cyrus' spirit was stirred up. He wrought upon Cyrus. Who, who can turn the hearts of kings? Who could turn the hearts of kings? Imagine knee knocking Daniel going to Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord stirs up the heart of Cyrus. I don't just conquer and dominate Cyrus, I influence him and I change his feelings and emotions. The Lord holds Cyrus's heart in his hand, enlightens his mind, shows him what was right and what was his duty to do, and presses him to the performance of it. John Gill says, so that Cyrus could not be easy until he'd done it. He agitated him, perhaps. I got to do this. I got to do this. And Cyrus was even made willing and eager to do it because the Lord stirred up his spirit. We'll come into the words of that proclamation next Lord's Day, but suffice it to say, the Lord is stirring up the spirit of Cyrus so that Cyrus will proclaim something, write it down and deliver it and do something. It says in Isaiah 45, where I think we'll be next week, about Cyrus, named by the way, named in Isaiah Cyrus, 100 plus years prior to the events in Ezra, it says, 45.4, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. That's is about Cyrus. I call you by your name, Cyrus. I name you though you do not know me. Ooh, don't be that person where the Lord knows you, but you don't know the Lord. Cyrus knew not God, nor how to serve him. But God knew him, and God knew how to serve himself by Cyrus because he stirred up his spirit. Cyrus's spirit was stirred up. So every good and perfect thing in James, it says, comes from above from the Father of heavenly lights. Even Cyrus's proclamation. It's God that stirs up the spirit to act. Henry says he gives us thoughts in our mind. There's probably a whole lot there to discuss. That's a fascinating thought. Gives us enough understanding to form right judgments and directs us. Any good offices, therefore, at any time, blessing the church are because of God at all times. If God stirs up the spirit of Cyrus, the Persian pagan king, who I see no indication to presume was redeemed in any particular way, how much more your spirit? How much more your spirit? Do you know that you had a spirit of slavery? You know, it says that in Romans. You have not received again a spirit of slavery, but a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. That's how our spirit gets to be stirred up. In John 14, in the same passage where I shared with you that the Holy Spirit comes back to help you remember, in John 14, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. That's what Christ says to his apostles. Our spirit is one of adoption. At our new birth, our heart of stone was taken away and we were given a heart of flesh. Our valley of dry bones was given sinews and flesh and we were made alive. We've been made new. And that's why we look to Jesus, the king of kings. Cyrus is the king of king. Jesus is the king of kings. He's God in the flesh. Cyrus didn't know God, and he was used by God. Jesus is God in the flesh, acting in history and stirring up our spirits by his spirit. This is our hope. This is what we look towards. We look towards the day when our spirits are made perfect. We were dead, and we are now alive, those of us who know the king of kings. Well, it says in Psalm 42, why are you downtrodden? Trust in God. Trust in God, the king of kings, the one who moves the spirit of kings. And look to one greater than Cyrus. I think Cyrus is typological of Christ right here. Who is greater than Cyrus? Cyrus's kingdom has a beginning in the first year. Cyrus's kingdom had an end. It's when the Greeks came and conquered him. Of our Lord, there's no beginning. And those of you might remember the song, and of his kingdom, there's no end. No end. That's what's greater about Christ. And we have here the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. 
That's the word made flesh is what you ought to be thinking when you see this, who dwelt among us. We have these dim and dark sayings it says in Numbers about the Old Testament, and yet we have the word made flesh who dwelt among us. And he's even here now among us being worshipped. Think about this. What did the exiles want to do? They wanted to get out of Babylon, and they wanted to go home, and they wanted to worship God in the temple. What are we doing right now? Worshiping the Lord in his church together, hopefully with stirred up spirits. What a wonderful, wonderful promise that we see already fulfilled. And yet, is there more to it? Yes, because one day, face to face, one day face to face, we'll see the Lord. And Cyrus made a proclamation. Did Jesus make a proclamation? He did. He said, it is finished. Jesus said, it is finished. So there's one greater than Cyrus. That's where we lift our eyes to the heavens. That's where our hope lies. One day, we'll be in his consummated kingdom, but now we're in his inaugurated kingdom. We worship the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who stirs up the spirit and holds the hearts of kings in his hand. One day, if you follow along with Ezra 1.1, one day we will hear the words of our Lord from the mouth of our Lord. I'll hear it. In that year... Not the first year. In those days, we'll all be together perfected, worshiping the Lord with our spirits stirred up in affection, beholding once and for all, face to face, and forevermore the King of kings. I hope you can join me in saying praise be to God. Let's pray. Blessed God, the Father of all mercy, who continues to pour out his benefits upon us. O oh Lord, you have chosen, called us, justified us, set us apart, and glorified us. And now, Lord, you have fed us with the bread of life, your word. So we have eaten the food of angels. Bless it, Lord. Make it health and strength to us as we strive and prosper until one day we see you face to face. You, Lord, who have done everything for us. Grant this, dear Father, for your Son's sake, our only Savior. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, but one most glorious, incomprehensible God, be all honor, glory, and praise forever. Amen.